Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'll give you a moment to turn there with me in your Bible if you'd like. We'll remain standing together as we read out of honor for the Lord and His Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 6 through 15. This is the Word of God to us this morning. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we are with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers... Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You may be seated. And in just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, We want to just mention that we are going to be praying for one of our missionaries and missionary families today, and that's Newton Chilingulo. So he and his wife and, and kids are in Malawi, and he's pastoring a church there and training other men as well uh, for ministry. So we want to pray for him and the work there in Malawi. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for the truth of the song that we were just singing, that it can be well with our soul, that at the deepest, most fundamental level, we can actually say it's well with us in the world and before you, and we know that's all because of Christ. And it is such a just amazing, blissful, happy thought that our sin, not in part, but all of it, was nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Lord, we just we thank you that there is absolute pardon, full of forgiveness for us in Christ. And we're just amazed and humbled to think that you, our Creator and Lord, would send your own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to he- walk here among us and to be humbled even to the point of death for unworthy people like us. But Lord, we praise you and we worship you and we just we acknowledge to you together collectively this morning all of our sin, even this week in so many ways, We've uh, rebelled against you and had hearts set on other things. And so we come together again to the foot of the cross and just acknowledge that we need Christ. We need his mercy. We need his blood that cleanses us from sin. And we thank you that there is full pardon in Christ. Thank you that Christ was raised. And because he's defeated sin and death, we know that we too can have life now and then life with you eternally. And Lord, we just praise you for all the promises that you've held out to us in your word. Thank you that we can hold them and take them to the bank because you are faithful and true and you never default on your word. Lord, we um, we just thank you that you allow us as a church to be involved in the work of the Great Commission, making disciples here uh, as well as globally. And we just want to lift up Newton and his family to you right now and the church in Malawi. And we pray that you would continue to build up in that church strong uh, disciples who are excited about following Christ and understanding your word. Um, we pray for him, for him and his family, Lord, and just ask for your encouragement in their lives Would you continue to protect them and guard them and strengthen them and enable them for the service that you have for them there. We pray that your word would speed forward and that the ministry there would have impact in other cities as well as they're thinking about church planting and, and other endeavors to bring your gospel elsewhere. Lord, we just ask for your blessing on it. We pray that you would use what they're doing to impact people's lives uh, for eternity. And we know that your word doesn't return void. So we just, we praise you for uh, Newton and his family, and we just ask your blessing on what's happening there. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you um, do minister to us and change our hearts by your spirit's power as we hear your word. And we ask that you would open our hearts to what you have for us this morning. Would you do a deep heart change, and would you draw our minds and our hearts uh, towards Jesus to worship him. And it is in his name that we pray together. Amen.
from your word, that we get to hear more of this Christ. We get to hear more of this wonderful mystery. God, would we, because of hearing your word this morning, would we know you more than we ever have? God, would we see you and love you and trust you for all that you are and all that you've done? Help us to love Christ this morning. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody likes love, not everybody loves love. Everybody likes love, not everybody loves love. Everybody likes the idea of love until they realize what it really means. People love the idea of being married until they realize it means sticking with someone in spite of their sin through many dangers, toils, and snares. People Love the idea of church membership until they realize there's a responsibility and theirs and other sins are going to be put on full display and will need to be dealt with. Our passage for today, 2 Thessalonians 3, 13 to 15, continues showing the obedient church. What the obedient church does as it obeys Christ and loves the family in Christ and has the difficult conversations and takes the difficult action. 
one of the more practical and painful scripture passages. Not everybody loves love or knows what it is. Forrest Gump said to Jenny, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Some think love is always getting their way, always having things go well. It feels good for them. They like what's happening. Some people think love is a feel-good emotion filled with unbiblical cliches like love means never having to say you're sorry. Love, according to God, is a choice. We love God because he first loved us. We would never choose to love God unless and until he had set his covenant love upon us first. We are called to love one another in the church. We choose to love God and we choose to love others. Even that prayer at the end of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 says that may your love increase and abound. May it overflow the banks to bless others. You have to ask yourself the question today. Do I love love? Do I love the church? Do I love the church fully or do I just say it? Does it sound good until I have to actually live it? Is, is my love real or is it dependent on my feelings? Is it dependent on my, my current attitude? Or sometimes the choice to love is painful. Sometimes it's not received. Sometimes you're misunderstood. Sometimes you're questioned. Sometimes we're tempted to do something unloving because we're afraid that our love is going to be taken the wrong way. But captured here, these verses that are before us today, is the idea that the obedient church loves the family so much that it engages in church discipline. The obedient church loves the family so much, loves Christ and loves the church, his bride, so much that it practices church discipline. The Bible portrays healthy church membership. The Bible portrays healthy church leadership. And the Bible spells out church discipline. It's tough. And I think we can all admit we often disobey it. We often disobey what the word says about it. Some people go way too tough on it. Some people go way too easy on it. The tendency for most churches is to go way too easy on it and ignore a bunch of things. And then you just get the gift that keeps on giving, a bad behavior. But we often disobey what God says in the word regarding church discipline. We want to ignore it. We think it might go away. We think that we can say, you know, I know better than God. He says to do this, but I think that I, I think that the, the path is really just let it go. It'll work itself out. We fear what others are going to say. We fear what others are going to do. It's kind of like this. Like everyone likes self-discipline. Everybody hates church discipline. Self-discipline is good because you're pointing yourself in the right direction, in the good direction. Church discipline is bad even though you're pointing someone in the right direction, in a good direction. The verses we've been looking at for the last three weeks, verses 6 to 15, are all about church discipline. It's all about church discipline. And it's, it's loud. The volume's getting turned up. 
in, in, in verses 6 to 10, it was loud to start with. He's cranking up the volume. The obedient church keeps the word of God. The command was very clear. Stay away from those who are idle and then who cause problems in the church. And the example was very godly. We worked hard. We weren't a burden. We didn't make problems. And the rule was really fair. It was applied to everyone without bias. Wasn't playing favorites. And then verses 11 and 12 just got louder. Like the, Just cranked it up another, another couple notches. The obedient church corrects the unruly. And it even spoke directly to, not naming them by name as some places in the Bible do, but they would have known who they were. And then in verses 13 to 15, the message gets amplified here. It's like now it's at, at the top decibels. The obedient church loves the family. And just in case you think, oh, it's, this is different than, than those other things. It, it's in the same context. It's about church discipline. That the obedient church loves the body of Christ so much that they practice church discipline. So that repentance would come about. So that good would happen. They would have the difficult conversations. They would take the difficult action when necessary. The obedient church loves the family enough to practice church discipline. We're going to see in this passage, first in verse 13, they continue to do what is good. Verse 14, they continue to obey the word of God. And then verse 15, they continue to warn the disobedient. Continue to do good, continue to obey the word of God, continue to warn the disobedient. Put your eyes on verse 13. Just look at it. It starts this way. As for you, brothers, church, brothers and sisters, brethren. This is the first point. The obedient church loves the family so much, and they do so by continuing to do good. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. You seem fed up with those that are causing problems. You want to throw in the towel. Don't stop doing good. As for you, there's a strong contrast. Now it's no longer uh, talking about those who were idle and who had so much time on their hands. They had treachery on their lips, and they were making problems in the church. Now the exhortation is to the church, and the duty of the church is clear. And the duty of the church, even though church members might be annoyed, even though church leadership might be a bit frazzled by it, even though people might have gotten a bit irritable towards those who were causing problems, and even some were either tempted or had started to act in unloving ways towards those who were being disobedient, what they needed to see is that the church is responsible for every member in the church, and the church is responsible for the disobedient. Brothers, family in Christ, do not grow weary. Literally, do not behave badly. Do not respond wrongly. Do not be cowardly. Do not lose courage. Do not lose heart. Do not faint. It's forbidding something not yet done. You haven't grown weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. Good is the noble thing, the right thing. The thing that gives the powerful example. The thing where you say, I want to be like that. I want to follow that example. Doing good to all the brethren. Or hardworking members of the church might have gotten a bit weary or a bit tired of having to support the lazy. And then they're having so much free time, they're making issues with people. And, and maybe, they're, maybe they were tempted to say, you know what, we're going to stop all 
all sharing. We're going to stop all helping of those in need because we've got a few bad actors over here. We're going to give up on charity as a church. And they might have been tempted to do that. And Paul is reminding them that the truly needy, truly needed help and that the Thessalonians must not be negligent in giving that help. Do not grow weary in doing good. The example is Jesus. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you would not grow weary and faint-hearted. The example is Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He says to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not give up. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18.1 of the persistent widow. He told them this parable to the effect that they, would, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't stop doing right, even if it is painful, even if it is uncomfortable, even if you're frazzled by the, the bad choices of bad actors. Because the obedient church loves the family by continuing to do good, even, even if it's misunderstood. Like, you'll do good, and you'll do what this passage says, and you'll be misunderstood for it. So that's not loving. That's harsh. And all that was in the heart of the church was to be loving and to bring about repentance. Leads us to a second point in verse 14. The obedient church loves the family by continuing to do what is good, but also by continuing to obey the word of God, even when it is painful. Verse 14 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, which could cover everything they've said, but most likely in this context, in the tight context, it's what he's saying right now, what has been said. Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. This is painful, that he may be ashamed. There had already been warnings. In the first letter, there were several warnings. There had been warnings in the, in the second letter. And you know how some people just beg for attention? Some people just have to have a lot of attention. And they're not happy if they're not making people miserable and trying to get them as enough attention as they can. Well, the disobedient, we're going to get some attention here. Like, if you want some, some attention, just do what they were doing. Oh, they're going to get, you'll get some special treatment. They're going to get some special treatment. In fact, the disobedient would be given special treatment if there was no change in their behavior. And this was an authoritative word. This is the inspired word of God. And, and the church was to obey it. But here he's saying if someone doesn't obey it, here's what you do. If they don't listen, if they don't obey, and this word obey, it's like you're a doorkeeper and you hear the doorbell or you hear someone knocking at the door. In fact, it's used in Acts 12 this way. You answer the door. You hear it, and then you act on what is heard. But here he's saying if someone refuses to do that, they hear the word of God. They say, I'm not going to do it. Proverbs 16, 27 says the ungodly man digs up evil. He's got a shovel all day long. He's just looking for evil. He's got like a metal detector for evil. He's got an evil detector. I just want to go look for evil all the time. Jeffrey Chaucer in his 1380 novel Canterbury Tales put it this way. Solomon says that idleness teaches a man to do many evil things. 
You might go, well, what's the big deal with idleness? Well, it, it led them to meddle in other people's business. It led them to make problems in the church. It led them to sin against people. In 1971, the Living Bible came out and, quote, and, and wrote it this way, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Another way you could put it is a worthless man devises mischief. And what we're seeing here in the word is there, there comes a time when you are forbearing and you are being patient, but now there comes a time where that gives way to decisive discipline where the community takes corrective action. And it's the most loving thing to do. See, some people like love, they don't love love, and so they misunderstand love. What he says to do is take note of the person. It's not like, you know, you're writing. I remember I used to see someone walking around our old neighborhood just taking notes. I'm thinking, are they taking notes on my house? Or, you know, like, the yard isn't good enough? Or, what, what's going on? Someone actually saw me doing that once, and I, was, I had my sermon notes in my hand back in the day when I was, like, walking around with my sermon notes, uh, looking at them in, on paper, and... And someone said, are you like on like the board where you're taking notes on everybody's house? Because at the time we were living in a place that had a little association. I'm like, no, 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 I'm looking at my, I'm going to preach the word. I'm looking at the Bible. Oh, we thought you were taking notes on us. Here, you take note of them. You know, you know what it means? Mark them out. Put a tag on them. I mean, seriously. Like, you, you don't want this tag. You know, walk around Grace Church of Orange and there'll be a tag on you that says, disobedient to the word of God gossiping about other members in the body of Christ not going and doing what is right I mean that's the idea it's the idea of disapprove of them mark them out and having nothing to do with them literally means don't mix up together with them it's a compound of don't combine and don't interact what do we do oh it's going to be okay it's going to work itself out. Or with our friends, we're like, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, the people we don't like, you know, we'll be tougher. This is what happens. It says have nothing to do with them. Don't associate with them. Don't keep company with them. Don't have social interaction with them. This is the consequence for blatantly disobedient Christians. Paul put it, bad company corrupts good morals. But you know what's interesting? It doesn't say exactly how to do it. It doesn't spill, spell it out exactly. It's kind of like when you buy something and there's an instruction manual and there's these certain steps that you're like, are they missing? I, I can't figure it out. Just use your common sense. You know, certain things you just have to move around. They're not going to be perfectly built thing and you have all these things. Sometimes you just have to use your common sense. But there wasn't an instruction. I think I can figure this out. Ask a friend. Phone a friend. So despite repeated instructions people are people some are going to continue out of harmony with the gospel this is what's being addressed here and discipline was to be used the offender was to be warned and you, you wonder what, what, like what I don't know all I know I, I kind of get a picture of a soccer match football for some of you and, and the, the referee uh, might see something and go over to a uh, player and say, come here for a minute. And stop kicking that other person in the shins. But if it happens a couple more times, yellow card. If you keep doing it, red card. This is like the, the, the yellow card moving towards a red card. It can't be true fellowship with a person when they're choosing to break fellowship. 
in Judaism, in the community of, of the synagogue, they enforced different levels of discipline, including corporal punishment, including, you know, you could get whipped. Now, the church adopted most of those levels of discipline except for corporal punishment. So you're not going to get whipped at Grace Church of Orange, okay? And some of those disciplines sometimes treated someone as part of the religious community. It's like being put on restriction or put on probation. I remember when I was a kid, there were times I would misbehave and my parents would say, Michael, you need to go to your room. Which means you're not going to be around the family right now. You're showing us you can't behave very well. Now, some parents go way too strict. Some go, you know, way too lenient. The parents that are lenient, they're like, we're not going to discipline our kids. Those are parents who are crazy. All right? Those are parents who say, I'm going to teach my kid how to manipulate me and everyone else in the world when they grow up. But on the other side, there's some parents that are like, you know, uh, provoke their kids to anger because they're just too harsh. My parents were perfect, and they basically said, Michael, you're not going to be with the family right now. You're going to go to your room. Now, I wasn't kicked out of the family as an eight-year-old. But I'm sure I, I, how many times have I said, when I was a little kid, I was sweaty and in trouble most of the time. I was rambunctious. And they got other names for it now, but I'm serious. There were plenty of times where I'm like, I had to get set aside for a while until I decided, here we are now, that I was going to act differently. And Paul's saying, there are people in the church that are, if they're going to act up, you're going to just, you can't let it go. You can't let it go. You got to take care of it. You got to do something, and do something loving. Not hateful, not unkind, but some sort of social exclusion. Most likely in this context, it would have been exclusion from the common meal, which was just at the heart of their church life. So significant. But there was, some, there was supposed to be some loving, decisive, determined discipline. There was a purpose. Look at the verse. There's a purpose for it. That he may be ashamed. That he may be ashamed. That he would be convicted of his sins. He or she, this is not just men that do this. Men and women in the church can act up. This is, this is that they would be convicted so that they would turn and repent of their sins. And how many times we say, well, we'll just we'll ignore it and see if what happens. Again, get the gift that keeps on giving. That he would be ashamed. That he or she might feel ashamed and brought to a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of conduct, such that they could be a contributing and healthy member of the body. Ashamed literally means to turn in on yourself. Like you're thinking it through. You're, you're self-reflecting. You're looking in the mirror. And in the mirror you see the reflection and you see the enormity and the monstrosity of what you thought was nothing because you were thinking only of yourself. And you think of the enormity and the monstrosity of your sins and your actions and how it has affected the church and how has it affected you. This is what it's aiming towards. It would be avoided in some way in order to, 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 to shock them into repentance and into rest, uh, going towards a path of restoration. If you want the restoration, you've got to do the, the difficult work that the Bible lays out. We all know this. We, we know that when it gets ignored, every once in a while it works out on its own. But most of the time, it gets worse. 
Now, this could be done in private. This could be done at a member's meeting. You're like, whoa, whoa, are we having a member's meeting right now? Like, seriously, like, church, I, I was at a church once. And it was a communion Sunday, and they said, now, we're going to have some family matters before we take the Lord's table. And there are some people, and they were very respectful about this, but they named names. They were doing what the Bible says, and they said, we, before we take the Lord's table, we take it very seriously. And there are some people in the church that are unrepentant for some sin. And we've been going to them, and we've been appealing to them, begging them to repent, and they are refusing. We cannot have fellowship, and so what we're doing is we are, we are simply reflecting what they have already done. They broke the fellowship. We are not going to be fake. We are not going to be disingenuous. We are not going to be dishonest. This is now going to reflect what they have chosen, and, and pray for them and appeal to them to turn from their sins so that they would be restored into fellowship in the church. So that they would be repentant. If you repent of your sins, some of you are like, well, what is repentance? If you repent of your sins, there's, there's really some steps in the process. And the first would be a, a remembering of something that you would, because you, repentance means a change of mind and a change of direction. And you would remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you would be able to admit, I have sinned. And that you would realize only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from your sin. You can't make yourself good. You can't make yourself better. And, and then you need to resolve something. I want to turn away from my sinful behaviors. I want to turn to Christ. This is how you repent. I want to turn from my sinful behavior and by God's grace do that and then live in obedience to the scriptures. Be, do, live in obedience to Christ. And then there's some sort of returning. You're, you're coming back. There's almost a, a repayment in the fruit of repentance in your life where people see, wow, there's been a change of heart. There's a change in this person. They, they, they are, they are, it's like the prodigal son who has come to his senses and has, and has come to his father and said, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. And he is brought back. with open arms. God brought him to his senses. The church must obey. Even if others are disobeying, the church must obey. If we love Christ, we have no choice. This is the best route. This is the best thing to do. Paul told the Philippians, he says, look, you have been so obedient, church. You have done what, what God calls you to do. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling as God works in you to, to will and do his good pleasure. Take note. To the Romans, he said, watch out for those who cause divisions contrary to the teaching that you have received. We've got Matthew 18. If, if, if your brother sins against you, go to, go to Matthew 18. We'll go through some scriptures here. Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, and sometimes you get it wrong, you think someone did something, you can clear it up really quickly. 
let's go to them. What happens when everyone wants to talk to everybody else? What would they think someone did to them? Here's what the Bible says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't go to someone else first. Go to the person. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, presuming that there, is a, there has been sin. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. There's your church meeting, and he refuses to listen even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Literally, treat them as an unbeliever. Appeal to them to repent and be saved. And you don't go Matthew 18 someone, by the way. Like, that's not what you do. You don't go use this as a club. Well, I'm going to go vigilante justice, and I'm going to go Matthew 18 someone. Some of you, if you're thinking, I know who I'm going to set straight after the church service here, oh, and I'm going to slip out during the last song so I can get first in line to set them straight. You're wrong. You need to repent. This is to be done lovingly. This is to be done carefully. And in fact, it, it, it even says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. People are like, it doesn't mean if you have a prayer meeting with one other person, you're getting what you want. This is in the context of church discipline, and it's saying if you do the right thing. When I was preaching through Matthew years ago, I called, does anyone here remember what I called church discipline? Church good stuff. Because it, it leads to something good. When you do what is right, it leads to something good. And then the verse that gets mangled, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. People are like, oh, there's two or three of us gathered. The Lord's with us right now. Last time I checked my Bible, Jesus is with me always. This is saying that when you do what is right, when you do what the Bible says, when you do it lovingly, when you do it carefully, you have assurance from God that you're on the right track, even if you're maligned for it and misunderstood, even beaten up for it, for doing the right thing in a loving way. Go over to 1 Corinthians 5. There was something going on in the, in the Corinthian church that, that made pagans say, what? We don't even do that. And the church is okay with that? 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. It's, it's unchecked in the church. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man was having an affair with his mother, with his uh, stepmother. And he says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, cleanse, cleanse the, 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 the old leaven out. Christ was sacrificed. Don't trample on Christ. And he, and he goes into it. He said, this is a, a, someone who's saying they're a believer. And, and he says this in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Yes, inside the church, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, if someone says, well, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be around Great Church of Orange and do this, that, and the other, that needs to be corrected too. But what we're talking about here is church discipline of believers. 
2 Corinthians 2. It seems to be that that happened. The church did it. They were delinquent in it. They didn't do it at first. They were disobedient at first. They did it, and here's the outcome. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Our sin hurts the church. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Like church, don't be hard-hearted towards this person. They've repented. Believe it, accept it, love this person. And he says, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Do what the word says. Don't ostracize people. But when there's someone who has been sinning and, 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 and they're, like Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in any sin, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. There's a process. Watch yourself lest you be, to be tempted. But the, the, it's so that they would be ashamed. So they would be convicted of their sins. So they would turn from their errors. Psalm 83 verse 16 says this, fill their faces with shame, Lord, that they may seek your name. Convict them of their sins so that they would worship you. Because letting it go and doing nothing is unloving to the rest of the congregation who gets hurt by people's sin, and it's unloving to the disobedient one who just keeps going in their way because they're not getting called to right action. The church needs to be concerned with the behavior of individual members in the church. Someone once said this, Christianity is dependent for its influence and growth in the world upon the character of its disciples. The way we live, who we are, has an effect, and we need to care more about Christ's body than our thoughts, than our ideas. I'm sure there's been plenty of times otherwise where everyone's ignored something and it blew up. The idea of doing this is that others would be fearful of sinning, that others would be put on notice, that, uh, that the person that's been sinning would say, I've, I've sinned, I'm wrong. There was this decisive disassociation that, that was supposed to be obvious and that the person would be convicted of their sins and repent and be restored to fellowship. The discipline was designed, always designed to, to bring about repentance, not division. And, and what, what we're seeing is this, some sort of social pressure that can help a sinful person come to their senses. They've already hindered fellowship. Now being excluded from some things, that will help them feel the separation that their sin has already brought into the church. It really reflects what was done relationally. And what they're supposed to do is process it with the head of the church, with Jesus Christ, and then go to human leaders and repent. And we need to obey this because Jesus is behind it. If we say we know better than Jesus, we are in a bad way. The church must deal with it in the most loving way, not ignoring what was done, but to drive a person to repentance and reinstatement in the church. This is what the obedient church does. It loves the family so much, continues to do what is good, even if they're you know, frustrated with the person who's been sinning, and continue to obey the word of God, even if it's painful to do. 
Which leads us to a third idea here that the obedient church loves the family not just by continuing to do what is good and continue to obey the word, but by continuing to warn the disobedient, to continually warn them, even if tempted to ignore what they're doing. So to continue to turn up the volume, really. Verse 15 says this, Do not regard him as an enemy, but, but warn him as a brother. That implies that some people might overdo the discipline and say, well, now they're an enemy. No, consider them, reckon them not as an enemy, but as a brother. That's, treat them as a brother or a sister in Christ if they are professing that they are a believer. Don't, don't be antagonistic towards them. Don't be angry at them. Don't, don't feel hostility towards them. you got to deal with that. The church discipline is always aimed at renewing the relationship that you would want the person to come back and, and, and you're not going to make it personal. That you're not going to be vindictive. That you're not going to be unkind. That you're going to treat one another as family and don't say, well, my family treats ourselves, you know, each other badly. No, no, no. Treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ ought to be treated. Do all the one another's. Admonish, correct. To admonish, to correct, it means to put in their mind. Put them on notice. This needs to change. Correct those in error. They were, to, they were to warn him. The Greek word is nutheteo. It's where we get our word nuthetic, which means biblical counseling. It's the idea of warning. It's the idea of exhorting. It's the idea of, of admonishing and instructing. Yeah, some people are too eager about it. They just want to run out and do vigilante justice. Don't do that. Don't do drastic things. The offender is still to be considered as one of the body they're wrong, they've sinned, they've erred, they need to be brought home, and, and, the, and the way to do it is to bring it home to them. To bring it home to their heart and their mind. Entirely in the spirit of love, with tender concern for their welfare, so that they would be reconciled, that they would be reclaimed, that they would be restored, that they would be renewed, that they would be even reconstructed in the body of Christ, that they would, they would this admonishment, which by the way, this warning, this admonishment, literally means you are to blame, and they have to admit it. How many people go, oh, I didn't do anything wrong. Da, 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 da. You're to blame. You did something wrong. Now let's just deal with this. Stop doing the bad thing. Start doing the good thing. Here's how you love your family in Christ. You have the difficult conversation. You have uh, the difficult action to take at times. It should break our heart. It causes us to tremble. It's an objective thing the restoring of a family relationship that hits our feelings, but the objectivity of this ought to govern our feelings and actions rather than our feelings and actions governing the act outcome because what we'll do is we'll remember the pain or the suffering that the offender has afflicted on us and then we want to make them pay. This is about them repenting before God and the church. Not denouncing anyone. This idea of this no social con contact idea, it, it really doesn't mean to break off all contact because you're supposed to keep warning them. It's just don't pretend like they're just can be a part of everything. I know it's hard to figure out. It's just not absolutely stipulated how this plays out. So you need to use wisdom in consultation with elders as a most uh, appropriate interaction that might need to take place. But you must admonish, you must warn the sinner to forsake the error of his ways. 
I know it's counterintuitive, but it, it reflects what they've already done relationally. In Titus 3, it says that a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. There's a three-strike rule there. But what is being called for here is, is to do this in the spirit of, of Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The rebuke of a friend. For you would have mercy on those who doubt, as Jude 22 says, save others, snatch them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear. Where you would have a steady refusal to engage in their evil, to interact with their evil, but you have a genuine concern for the well-being of the wrongdoer. And what's going to happen is, as you do this, you will be misunderstood by some. You'll be misunderstood maybe by the wrongdoer, by the offender, or you'll be misunderstood by those who are observing. You go, how could you interact with that person? I'm calling them to repentance. I'm telling them the truth. In Leviticus 19, it says, you should not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God says this. And believers need to listen. Believers need to repent. When you hear something about yourself, you need to do a self-evaluation. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. Proverbs 9.9 9 says, Give instruction to a wise man. He will become wiser still. Teach a righteous man. He will increase in learning. Proverbs 25, 12 says, Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. You need to listen. Because family ties need to be retied and maintained and restored. And how this is so important is that when you look at verse 15 in the Greek, and just as in the English here too, the last word is brother. It's very important. The family of God is very important. Beloved, be steadfast in doing what God says. Now, the, the error, you say, well, it didn't rise up to the level of what happened in Corinth. That's true. The, the error in Corinth was so flagrant that it brought disrepute upon the church, and the pagans were blaspheming the name of God because of the church. In Thessalonica, the offense didn't seem so aggravated as to bring the reproach of pagans, but there was someone sinning that needed to be corrected. Now, they probably could, could attend some meetings, but not take the Lord's Supper. Not, not fake it. In the church back then, if they were saying, hey, you know, we're distributing food to the people, we're going to give food to everybody. Well, if they give food to this person, and they say, hey, you can just enjoy all the social gatherings, it would make it look like they condone the sin. I've had people come to me before at Grace Church and at a former church and say, are the elders okay with, with this going on because we don't, nothing's getting done? And in both instances, something was getting done, but it was so quiet behind the scenes, nobody knew it was getting done. And people were kind of parading their sin around in the, in the, in the church. People were worried. People were wondering. But here, what, what you see is you're not, you're not to treat the person as an enemy but as a brother or sister in Christ do the fair thing with them do the noble thing don't play favorites don't, don't put a bias on it don't say well I know them really well so I'm going to let it slide or I don't really like them that well so I'm going to you know hit them between the eyes it's always a spirit of love and humility with good motives for the glory of Christ 
And don't we praise God for repentance? We should be praising God when someone repents. We should be praising God when someone gets restored to fellowship. We should be praising God when someone is reconciled. These are family matters. This is for professing believers. This is why it's called church discipline, because church discipline is applied to, to professing believers. And how do you do it? Well, the elders must be involved, and the congregation should follow the lead. We're not talking vigilante justice. Now, if you have an issue with someone and you think they've sinned against you, you go and talk to them in private, just like Matthew 18 says. But let your elders serve and lead you with joy and not with groaning. How do you do this? Well, the obedient church loves the family by continuing to do good. Do what is right. Help everyone in need. And continue to obey the word of God. If someone refuses to obey it, they need to have this close association cut off for a while so that they can be convicted for their sin, uh, by their, of their sins. And then continuing to warn the disobedience, even if you're tempted to ignore the issue. What do we do with this? How, how do we live this? We're sitting here hearing this, and I think all of us are saying, I don't ever want to deal with this. And some of you are like, I think that some things need to be dealt with. What do we do? Let me give you three takeaways. First, take this to heart. You, take it to heart. If you're sitting here thinking about other people that are misbehaving, your heart's not right. You need to go, there's a warning here. I'm going to accept this as the warning it is. I'm going to let it hit my heart first. This should warn us all. This should tell us you live for gospel purposes. You need to have a healthy self-evaluation. You need to say, wow, is it me? Am I causing any trouble in the church? Am I causing any trouble at all? Am I unrepentant in any way? Have I been, have I been disobedient to the word in any way? That's what we should be doing. First, accept the warning that this is. Let God open the eyes of your heart, as Paul told the Ephesians, that, that your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God, and that you would know the hope that you're called to, and the riches of His glorious inheritance. As Colossians, in Colossians 1 puts it, the, the hope of eternal life laid up for you in heaven. You would set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth that your affections, that what you are seeking would be Christ and that, and that you wouldn't stay. Let's say you find yourself in this prison of your own making. You wouldn't stay in a mind prison of your own making, but you would repent and you wouldn't hold others captive to your choices. Galatians, it says that in Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't be enslaved. Don't be, don't be caught by a yoke of slavery. The gospel can run free in your life. If you're bound up in sin and you're just hating people and you might even think you hate God, repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. Believe what Jesus said. That if, if anyone comes to, to me, I will never cast him out. That all that the Father gives me will come to me. That, that your hurtful thinking could be turned around. That that God can open your eyes. If you're a Christian today, that you know you once were lost and that you were excluded from fellowship with God and his church, you were without hope, you were without God in the world, you were darkened in your understanding, but by grace you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is what God does in the gospel. 
that you can reverse the listening to yourself all the time and you can, you can preach the gospel to yourself and believe it. Hope in God. Tell your soul to hope in God. But secondly, not only should we take this as a warning to all of us, we need to acknowledge or we need to admit that there are probably some situations we should have dealt with. And it's the gift that keeps giving. That if there's a professing Christian living a sinful lifestyle, will not repent, continues on, there's no traction, we need to speak up. When you bypass the prescribed scriptural process, it just causes further harm. That's what it does. And thirdly, we need to act when necessary. You might be asking this question, when do I say something? When do I need to actually step in and say something? I don't know. But be careful and don't jump to conclusions because you could jump to the wrong conclusion. The Bible doesn't tell you exactly when and what to say. You're going to use wisdom and loving kindness. Work with elders on it. Don't be a vigilante and don't be cowardly. Don't hide as your comrades are hurt. I would put it this way. Use, use this sparingly and with great care like chili pepper. When I was in high school, I worked at Sal's Italian Market in Downey, and one of our jobs was to make uh, Italian sausage. And you would go into the sausage room, and you'd make sweet sausage or spicy sausage. And one day, Charlie Battaglia and I were sent in there to make spicy sausage. And there was this big container, and, and it was in the late 70s, and so as much as it could be like a clean room, it was. And there was a, a big container of these spicy uh, you know, crushed chili pepper, and one of us inadvertently knocked it over, and it went all over the ground, and then the, this dust just came up in our nostrils, on our faces, in our eyes and ears, and we were burning, we were red, it, we were trying to drink milk, and it wouldn't work. We weren't careful. You need to use this sparingly and with great care like chili pepper. No vigilante shaming. This is not about one person with an idea in their head that someone did them wrong. If you think someone has sinned against you, go and speak to them in private, not to others, but to them, and do what the Bible says. Do not justify unbiblical acts. You can choose to let it go. You can choose to forbear. You can choose to do that. But this speaks of a situation, this passage, where the church is being infected and hurt, and you need to handle with care tread softly. I guess you could ask the question, are the wheels spinning or is there some traction? Are they going in the right in the right direction in any way? If someone's in a coma, we always ask if there's any response. I had a beloved cousin once that was in a coma for a very long time. And we were always wondering if she was making any any uh, progress and uh, it's because you care so much if someone's in a coma you're you're always looking you're just looking for a movement and you might even you might even say well i i saw their eyelid you know move or or when i walked in the room they heard my voice I, I i saw some response but what can happen when someone's in a coma for a while you can imagine a response and there might not be any and it might crush your heart but someone might just be an unbeliever and they're on their way to hell and that's the way it's going to be and you can preach the gospel to them their whole life and they will never respond. But if there is a spark of life, if there 
is any movement in the right direction. Fan that into flame. Don't give up on them. Don't throw in the towel too easy on people. Their soul is worth it. I don't know what kind of engagement this means someone should have if they're disobedient, but I know that it reflects the relational break that was made, and you've got to use collective wisdom to work it out. It's kind of like parents struggling to figure out what kind of discipline will work with their kids. And you need help from others, and um, you've got to always love. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a young kid or, a, a, you know, you're in high school or college or you're married or widowed or divorced or, or you know, uh, white-hot for the gospel or wandering and wondering where you're at with the faith, you know, this, this, this is something, isn't it? <laughs> it puts us all on notice, and... Um, I think what, what it reminds me to do is to forbear far more often. But we would say something like this. Even if you hate me, I will love you. I loved you when you hated your sin, and I'm going to love you when you love your sin, but I will not condone your sin, and I'm going to tell you the truth. And for f- fellow believers, I'm going to love you as my brother and sister in Christ. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's the most family thing to do. I will not lie to you. And you settle it in your heart. You say, I'm going to love all believers. I'm going to love every person at Grace Church of Orange. And I will choose to love even if it goes against my feelings, and if it goes against my will, because I'm called to love. This is what the obedient church does. Loves the family enough to practice church discipline. It's in the New Testament. It's a real mark of a real church. Sinful behavior warrants church discipline. You've got to guard yourself against falling into sinful behavior. But the church, under the leadership of the elders, is responsible for carrying it out. And if you find yourself under it, don't fight it. Cooperate. Repent. And I want to tell you one last thing. This passage of Scripture is flavored with tenderness and with truth that is tough truth. With tenderness and with authority. It's kind of like you know, cream cheese with just enough jalapeno pepper in it. It's not too mild, not too spicy, it's just right. And I think what's very striking here is right after this, right after this, he he ends with a prayer that the Lord of peace himself will give you peace. He doesn't say that there won't be any issues to deal with. He says that the Prince of Peace, the Lord of all, the one that we hope in, the one that we adore, would grant you peace and be with you. We had to adore Christ. This, this caused me to adore Christ. This passage of Scripture does not cause me to look around and say who should be corrected. This passage of Scripture causes me to reflect my own heart, and reflect on my own heart, and then adore Christ and say, Christ is my sufficiency. Christ is my adequacy. Christ is, is my all. I had a friend the other just yesterday, says to me, dear brother, he says, pray for me. Pray for me as I walk through the final days with my dad who's dying of cancer. And he says, my dad is in Christ. We're going to be okay. There's going to come a day that you're not going to have to worry about this life anymore. And if you're a believer, you're going to say farewell till we, see, till we meet again. But until that day, adore Christ. Adore Christ and don't get fixated on all the things that work you up. Adore Christ. Our life. I think when the majority of the church can say, for to me, to live is Christ and die is gain, he is our life, he is our peace, then we're going to be on the right track then we're going to do what God says. We're going to magnify Christ above life. 
And, and, and you find yourself, if you say today, I, I like love, I don't love love yet. I'm praying for you that you will learn to love love. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are love. You are not just loving, you are love. And when we love love, we love you because you are love. And when we love you, we love others. And, and just things just are under your sovereign hand and your sovereign control. And I pray, Lord, that above all, our hearts would adore you, that we would love love. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able and join as we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold He will hold has been satisfied He will hold me fast Raised with Him to endless life He will hold me fast Till our faith is turned to sight When He comes at last
that he holds us fast and praise God we can do life in the body of Christ together. Uh, we can't answer every question uh, every time we get together or every issue, but we can open up the word, let it speak, and then respond uh, by faith and by God's grace. We're going to be gone. I'm going to be gone the next two Sundays with my family. I'm going to miss you, uh, but we'll hope to see you in a couple weeks. And um, I'll be praying for you. And uh, we'll close with Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.